The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Fetch the Mallet edition. It's Wednesday, July 10th, 2019. A happy birthday to my wife and my father. True story. On today's show, Midsomar is the latest from writer-director Ari Aster, he of hereditary fame. His latest horrific turn takes us to the green fields and white nights of rural Sweden. And then one of the absolute legends of music has died. We discuss the genre-making, genre-busting career of Titan Joao Gilberto with the great critic Nate Chinen. And finally, life hack. Stop life hacking. It's for pretentious losers, a segment with uh, our beloved friend um, and friend of the program, Laura Miller. You'll have to pry my life hacking out of my cold, dead hands. Never. <laughs> never surrender. Okay, well, I'm joined by um, life hacker in chief, the uh, deputy managing editor of the LA Times, uh, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hello. Uh, and of course, by Dana Stevens. Dana, there. I can't imagine you've ever life hacked anything in <laughs> Are you saying that because of what a mess my life is? No, but you float above Rude. such, you know, menial, you know, solutions like these. You don't even perceive these as problems. How could you listen to the music of the spheres if you were? <laughs> I don't even know what personality type that places me into, but thank you. <laughs> it's all good. It's like a slew of compliments. Uh, Dana Stevens is Slate's film critic. Uh, guys, should we dig right in? Midsommar has an absolutely terrifying premise. A young woman uh, named Danny has lost her immediate family to a horrific event. Her one solace in life, it appears sometimes uh, in the movie, suggests comes from her boyfriend, but he has had one foot out of this relationship for a while now. His grad school friends, meanwhile, form a mini Greek chorus of commitment phobia and careerist self-advancement. Uh, one of these young men, however, comes from a small intentional community in the remoter uh, rural parts of Sweden. And so the five of them, bereaved Danny and these four callow males, uh, head there to his hometown to join in their midsommar, that is their summer solstice celebrations. Though this is an extra special one. It's a kind of festival that takes place only once every, every 90 years. Oh, and join in, they do. We uh, would ordinarily listen to a clip. We don't really have a clip from this movie. We do, however, have their trailer and we'll, uh, we'll play some of that instead. I was so very sorry to hear about what happened. I'm sorry. I invited Danny to come to Sweden. You know what she's been going through. Christian says you've got this special week planned. It's sort of a crazy festival. Special ceremonies and dressing up. That sounds fun. Welcome and happy midsummer. School! What time is it? 9 p.m. That can't be right. The sky is blue. This is what 9 p.m. is like here. Oh my god, it's light out at 9 p.m. <laughs> um, Dana, happy midsummer. <laughs> School. Well, uh, film auteur Ari Aster made quite a splash, both critically and commercially with Hereditary. It was pr pretty, pretty big um, um, altar hit. Is this follow-up? What'd you make of it? I'm so curious to hear what you guys think. I think that I would say that, like Hereditary, this movie will not age well in my mind. It, it's very grabby. It has a very strong vision. And, uh, and Ari Aster has incredible technical skills as a filmmaker to put across feelings and emotions and states of mind, um, something he does very well in Hereditary and in this movie. But like Hereditary, I would say that this movie becomes less scary and effective as it goes along, that the ending, and we can talk about what the ending is and hopefully not spoil the ending, but talk our way around it. The ending is much less strong than the first hour or so. And in the case of this movie, more so than Hereditary, I would say, the themes and ideas that he's trying to pack into the horror, you know, the, the the other level, the parallel level of meaning that runs underneath the surface horror is pretty unsubtle. So that a lot of the supposed twists and scares were things that I saw coming from minute one. So essentially, I would say that this movie is kind of unscary schlock, but it is so 
visually effective. Um, and Florence Pugh as Danny, the main character, is so excellent that I would still send people looking for a sort of Instagram-ready <laughs> midsummer horror vibe to see it. Uh, Julia, I can't remember what you thought of Hereditary, but I remember I remember all of us respecting it, if not loving it. What? Uh, where'd, you, where'd you come out on, on Midsummer? Didn't see Hereditary. Skipped that episode. Too much of a scaredy cat to ever see Hereditary. Um, <laughs> but I weirdly loved this movie. I am not sure that it is... I did that it actually has anything particularly smart to say, but the the sense of like exhilarated whackness that I felt at the end of it made me feel like something had happened in a in like a gut way that does not always happen at the movies. Um and just the strangeness of its vision and the electricness of its visuals, and despite being two and a half hours long, it did not feel long or draggy to me like I was there I was wrapped up in what was going to happen to Florence Pugh's character Danny uh I I felt ensorcelled I I loved it I loved it I'm not sure I can oh. defend it to scrutiny but I really loved it a full ensorcel from Julia Turner well we have something to talk about because I hated this movie okay so Ooh, I good. wonder okay. and this will this will be interesting to hear from Dana on too because I wonder if this is partially generational if you grew up Watching movies in the 1970s, The Exorcist, Rosemary's Baby, Wicker Man, you immediately see that he, Ari Aster, is completely obsessed with these films and, and has apparently watched and rewatched them and formed a kind of worldview and an aesthetic around them. And so there's something almost, for me personally, a little too familiar about what is supposed to be actually completely novel and shocking about these movies. Um, what I would say is that I loved... In this particular instance, I loved the movie up front in that I thought he did a super economical and penetrating job of showing you exactly what the relationship is between this poor, poor, bereaved young woman and this callow young man, this graduate student, who's a little bit of a cipher. I mean, the uh, oddly enough, the other members of that little Greek chorus have more definite personalities. He's a little bit of a weakling and as we t t t turns out something of a of a, the movie's patsy, but but as the movie I, I completely concur with Dana like there's a sh I don't want to spoil anything, but there's an initial shot of this village and I was like I know exactly how the rest of this movie goes. And it does go there. It goes there in the most uninvolving way possible. Along the way it loses all of what it earned in the first 45 minutes of the movie the relationship between these two young people no longer is the center of the film it disappears almost completely um and then it it it, it loses it to a larger ambition that it doesn't fulfill and we can get into that too but the larger ambition i think of the movie is to totally destabilize or unstabilize or whatever the viewer along with these young americans um as they encounter a community that's kind of a utopia and kind of a nightmare and you should be unsure how you feel about its horrors because the point of all of these pagan rituals um, is is they allow for the cohesiveness and kind of moral and aesthetic perfection of the community otherwise. And since you begin the movie by saying this is what death is in American culture, which is something so fucking over the top and grotesque, and furthermore, there's no structure within which to internalize it as a meaningful event or upload that experience to the nature of the cosmos, that the paganism has something to say for it. I mean, it's an antidote to modern anomie or whatever. And I feel like those are the ideas behind the ambitions that swallow up the human story, but those but those but those are so signposted and presented in such large semaphoric gestures that they don't land for me at all. So the movie to me was just completely uninvolving. Dana, back to you. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I want to hear more from Julia because I think you and I somewhat agree, although I at least still enjoyed the aesthetic experience of, of watching this movie. Uh, I was emotionally completely removed from it. I never felt identified with the grief of Florence Pugh's character. As good as she was, it was just, it was, like you say, too signposted and too telegraphed. And not to give anything away, but if you've seen The Wicker Man, you've seen this movie, <laughs> essentially, right? Yeah, exactly that, yeah. Okay, well, I have not seen The Waker Man, so maybe that's my problem. But I guess, uh, I mean, I, I hear you, Steve, and I understand that I think intellectually you are correct. There's maybe a more powerful version of this movie where she's initially more drawn to this community and its 
different way of dealing with life's great passages or something. Um, but I feel like the existing version hints at that in ways that are effective. And I feel like the way in which her relationship with this lout dissolves during the movie is not a weakness, but a strength. Like it is this absorption in and fascination with these other um, ways of being that allows her to recognize like what a shithead she's yoked herself to in lieu of any other way of processing the terrible thing that's happened to her and that uh, that she doesn't need him. And I, I, to me, the the most powerful pieces of this movie are about grief and depression, like her disassociation, her kind of inability to process anything, her inability to escape her feelings, just the like disassociative fugue state she's in the whole movie is really amazing and interesting and well acted. And then I hope we'll get to this. I, I think our plan is to talk about the ending a bit in our in our uh, Slate Plus segment today. There's a moment at the end where I think she fe- feels, to quote a character in the film, held in her grief that I found like totally startling and effective and good. And maybe I'm just an Instagram sucker, but like I, I, <laughs> I, it, it just was like beautiful and interesting to look at, and I found the performances largely good. Um, yeah, I, I, maybe it collapses like a souffle when you think about it, but I, I liked it. I mean, maybe I also just liked it because it was a lot less scary than I feared it would be. And the thing that you are citing as a demerit that you can see where it's going from the beginning is actually something that the director has spoken about in a bunch of interviews, which is that, you know, from the trailer, what's going to happen. Like, oh, a bunch of dopey Americans are going to some kind of ritual, spooky ritual like i wonder if they're all going to survive the movie hmm like <laughs> duh no yeah, um yeah. but that the the mechanism by which it all transpires at least around that central relationship i think is interesting the ways in which some of the other characters are dispatched is maybe um less fully realized or something but i i don't know i liked it julia i do agree with you that the relationship the central relationship between danny and her boyfriend christian is what sets this apart from an already familiar horror classic like the wicker man but didn't you find that his i don't know what you'd call it boorishness and unsuitability as a boyfriend was established way too soon and way too obviously i mean if the if the viewer had found it out somewhat at the same time as Florence Pugh's character finds it out. If if we had sort of thought that she felt held by him in some way at the beginning and then started to realize how that was falling apart, I just feel like this movie would have had more places to go. It had this sort of narrative flatness in that you knew from the beginning that she was the good guy in their relationship and he was the bad guy. And there just there needed to be some trajectory there. I mean, as anticipated, all of your criticisms make sense and seem hard to argue with. I just can't. I just felt, uh, I don't know. I had this like weird sense of aesthetic elation at the end of it that's maybe like beyond plot and um, and logic and thus is maybe less defensible than it should be. Yeah, that sounds more interesting. Sounds more interesting for the community to seem better at the beginning. Sounds more interesting for him to seem better at the beginning. Love the movie you guys are making in your minds. Nevertheless, the movie we actually <laughs> saw. Um, I don't know. I mean, is, is The Wicker Man that beautiful and weird? Oh, my God. The Wicker Man is so weird. Well, uh, The Wicker Man is a whole different conversation. But, I mean, The Wicker Man also just feels, to me, much more rooted in an actual history, right? I mean, Ari Aster sort of made up this this conglomerate, I don't know what you'd call it, sort of Scandinavian cult out of a bunch of existing pieces of history and culture. But it still feels to me like something completely contrived, invented for a movie. It's essentially the cabin in the woods from every horror movie, except with, you know, lots of beautiful flaxen-haired damsels in embroidered shirts. But The Wicker Man feels so chthonic, to use one of my favorite words. It really feels like it comes up out of the ground of rural England and uh, is just a thoroughly English and thoroughly bizarre tale. Anyway, I mean, it's kind of unfair to compare a movie made in 2019 by an American to, you know, this British classic from 1973 or whatever it is. But uh, but this movie invites that comparison by borrowing so heavily from those tropes. It does look it does look absolutely beautiful. And I can completely understand why this would inspire a line of you know summer fashions that I would happily buy into. It has a great sort of washed out brightness when they get to Sweden. It's really the opposite of the way Hereditary looked, right, Steve, which was so oh, muddy sure. and dark and greenish. And this movie yes. is just completely bleached out. With go, going out on a positive note, I love the final shot of the movie, which is a, a, a very 
pointed contrast uh, in its way to Wicker Man, but we don't want to spoil, so we're going to continue the discussion in the um, in the Slate Plus um, segment. One thing I would say to people who haven't seen the movie, very gory. I mean, it's not scary per se. I did not need to, you know, watch it through my hand, um, my fingers, but it's it's really, really gory. But Julia, you'll give me this, right? It's just an incredibly graphic and it's in certain kinds of body violence. horror yeah there's there's body some sort horror, of body yeah. horror moments that are that are hard to watch and i did watch those parts through my hands but not because it was there was a sense of suspense or scariness it was just yeah. i don't want this image in my head when i yeah, go to bed tonight. no exactly all right anyway the movie's midsummer we split on it but we'll continue this in our plus segment and we will now move on all right well before we go any further now is the moment in our program we cover some business if we have any dana what what do you got uh, really, our only business is to say that our plus segment today will be a continuation of our discussion of Midsummer, the horror film, because that movie is so spoilerific. There's no way we could really get into the juice without talking about the last 20 minutes or so and the fate of all of those ugly Americans who go wandering into a Swedish commune. So uh, that's our plus segment today, uh, Midsummer. Also, I just wanted to quickly add to our listeners in Vancouver, BC, thank you to all of you who responded to my ridiculous request that someone go to McLeod's bookstore for me and look for a book that I wish I had bought. I'm almost embarrassed that I dispatched total strangers on an errand and so many people responded. So I tried to get back to everyone who responded, but given that there were Twitter DMs, Twitter messages, uh, emails to the Culture Fest email, there were so many responses in different places of people kindly offering to go look for my book in the uh, labyrinth and piles of McLeods that I'm not sure I responded to you all. But thank you so very much. Someone actually went and didn't find it. And uh, then I called the bookstore and talked to a clerk, and he couldn't find it. And then a third person went and found the book and just yesterday sent me a picture of it freshly bought. So they're going to find a way to, uh, to send it to me and be reimbursed. That was so lovely. And thank you, Vancouver. And just as a corollary to that, we wanted to send out a feeler to see if we have a potential audience in Vancouver for a live show. It's not that we know this can happen or we have a date or a venue or anything like that. But I had such a great time there that week, and we were talking about never having gone to the west coast of Canada, although we have done a show in Toronto. So we're just trying to see if we possibly have enough of an audience to uh, go to Vancouver for a live show sometime in the future. So if that is something that you would attend, a Slate Culture Fest live show in Vancouver, please send us an email at culturefest at slate.com and we will tabulate the responses and hopefully maybe get there someday. And as always, of course, I wanted to send out the call for anyone who has not yet joined Slate Plus to go ahead and bite the bullet. Join Slate Plus. You'll be so happy. You can hear us spoil midsummer and things like that every single week. If you are interested in a Slate Plus membership for just $35 for your first year, go to slate.com slash culture plus. All right, back to the show. The Brazilian musical style known as bossa nova is largely the invention of one man, as I understand it, Joao Gilberto, the singer-guitarist and composer who died this week. To pioneer his low-key cosmopolitan sound, Gilberto radically softened the the sounds and styles of samba. He de-emphasized or even uh, mostly removed the drums altogether and brought a finger-picked cat guitar to the fore, along with a very delicate, breathy, and syncopated vocal delivery. The effect was sultry and lulling. Um, it brought with it the intimacy or the feeling of in- intimacy of a small nightclub setting, plays beautifully on the hi-fi. It was a modernized Brazilian music, a self-consciously modernized style of Brazilian music to coincide with the modernization of the Brazilian economy uh, in the uh, immediate post-war uh, decades. Gilberto's first record, Chega de Saudade. Um, Dana, here I'm going to defer to you, Portuguese speaker. Chega de Saudade. Thank you so much. Uh, in the late 50s, really launched the style in Brazil, and then we'll follow the narrative from there. It became huge as a global phenomenon. Uh, for this segment, we're uh, joined by the um, wonderful music and jazz critic, Nate Chinen. Nate, welcome to the show. Thank you. You know, I, I just wanted to say I'm a big fan of the show. Um, so it's a uh, it's very sad circumstance under which to to join you guys, but I'm I'm really happy to to be paying my homage. Oh man, it is great to hear that, and great to have you on because I have to say I've been a huge fan of your byline for a, a long time now. So this is uh, really wonderful. Um, can I just ask you to launch us by picking a cut to you know just let's play a Gilberto cut in order to get into it? Sure. You know maybe we should begin with that um, that first iconic recording of Chega G Saudade. Um, uh. You know there, there are there's some other things that I'll that I'd love to steer us towards, but this is this really was such a a monumental 
um, you know, game-changing kind of recording. So let's hear a bit of that. Vai minha tristeza diz a ela que sem ela não pode ser. Diz-lhe numa prece que ela regresse porque eu não posso mais sofrer. Chega de saudade a realidade Oh, that's just so beautiful. I guess it's important maybe to, to mention coming out of that that like a lot of these bossa nova classics from the early 60s, that song was written by the lyrics by the poet Vinicius de Moraes and the music by Antonio Carlos Jobim. So those two, along with Gilberto, became this kind of troika, wouldn't you say, Nate, that was connected with this new sound, bossa nova, that emerged in that in that period? Absolutely. And it's, it's one of those amazing alignments, you know, cosmic alignments where you know, Joao Gilberto was not really a, a composer. You know, he, he wrote some songs, but he, you know, he was primarily this genius interpreter and, and sort of, you know, singular musical force. But the fact that Jobim, you know, really one of the greatest composers of the 20th century, um, is, you know, they're, they're in the same circle. And in fact, my understanding is that this song, Jobim sort of had it, uh, it was either half finished or mostly finished, and it was encountering Joao and his, you know, the way that he played the guitar that that kind of gave him the spark to finish the song, you know. So it was this real sort of collaborative inspiration, um, you know. And the, the fact that Joao had uh, Jobim in his orbit, and and the two of them could sort of introduce this this new musical style together, I think is. You know, it's just one of those one of those miraculous things. A big part of how I learned Portuguese was through listening to this kind of music. It was you know listening to Brazilian music, and that was part of why I was interested in learning the language in the first place. So, you know, right. I used to translate these songs for myself all the time because, of course, there are English versions. There's a very famous English version of "The Girl from Ipanema" recorded by everyone, but it's not a translation of Vinícius de Moraes's lyrics. You know, it's just a different song mm-hmm. that happens to be singable to that beat. And the lyrics, João Gilberto just had incredible musical taste. So even though he didn't compose a lot of songs of his own, he almost never sang a song that was not a masterpiece by someone else. I think there's something to the to the fact that Portuguese is just a a beautiful sounding language, you know? Um, I mean, Joao Gilberto, I guess maybe it's possible that if the universe had decided to make him German, um, he might still have had an impact um, commensurate to, to the one that he did. But I think there's something really, you know, particular about the beauty of this, just the sound, like phonetically, um, that he produced as a singer. And, you know, the language obviously is central to that. I don't want to detour the conversation too far into um, American musical concerns, but it seems important to mention, especially for listeners who might not know this, that very early on in the career of of both uh, Gilberto and Bossa Nova, uh, both began an incredibly fertile dialogue with American jazz. Um, Essentially, Charlie Bird, on some kind of an American grant, went to Brazil, heard the music, fell for it completely returned to the States um, and told uh, the immortal you know, saxophone player Stan Getz about it, resulting ultimately in the huge breakout album in the United States, Getz, Getz Gilberto, which one of the greatest records ever cut, if you ask me, one of the highest selling jazz albums, on which, of course, you get this song that, I mean, probably everyone is going to know it, but Gilberto's wife at the time, Astrid Gilberto, is singing the vocals for uh, a Girl from Ipanema, so why don't we listen to that? And tan and young and lovely The girl from Ipanema goes walking And when she passes, each one she passes goes ah. When she walks, she's like a samba That swings so cool and sways so gently That when she passes, each one she passes goes Straight ahead, not at he Tall and ten 
Nate, talk a little bit about maybe how these partnerships, how important they were to, to Brazilian musical styles and to Gilberto's career. Sure. Well, if, if you don't mind, I'll begin with sort of picking up where you left off about just how, what a phenomenon this album was. Um, you know, and I'm sure like many people, this is the first I, you know, ever heard of Joao Gilberto was through Getz Gilberto. And this album was released in 1964. It was, you know, the, the song Girl from Ipanema was a huge hit as a single. And then the album was also a hit. And so in 1965, which is really, you know, full ascendance of the British invasion, um, this album wins album of the year at the Grammy Awards. And Ipanema wins record of the year. So it's just this sort of consensus, like, you know, massive commercial and critical success. And it not only it's, you know, it's not only this landmark, but it also starts this like massive craze. And so Bossa Nova becomes kind of a, you know, a vogue, um, certainly within jazz, but also, you know, throughout pop music. And I think, you know, a lot of what then follows is is kind of bastardized and and gets pretty far from the you know what makes this so magical um but i feel like the you know hearing stan gets play these melodies you know he's really the perfect the perfect jazz counterpoint to what joao is doing with these songs um so you know th- that album really does kind of like inhabit its own space um, you know, there's, there's a, there's a track that I wanted to also steer us to from a, an album that was just released a few years ago. It's, um, Gets Gilberto 76. Um, it was recorded live at the Keystone Corner, uh, in San Francisco. And, you know, it's one of a, a small handful of, of live recordings of the two of them, you know, with, uh, sort of mixed jazz and Brazilian accompaniment, um, bringing these songs, you know, to an audience. And one thing that, uh, like, I, when I first heard this, you know, I, I, got it, I got it on vinyl, I put it on, and it just completely blew my mind because, you know, I think Getz Gilberto is, is a masterpiece. Um, but to hear them kind of, you know, relax into this music a little bit, um, it, it takes it to another level for me. And so the, the track that I would love to to hear you guys respond to is is um, another Jobim song with lyrics by Chico Buarque. Um, it's called Retrato em Branco e Preto. And the, the thing that I that I would um, ask you to listen to specifically is this like beautiful subtle tension between um, the guitar playing, which is you know in the most organic way possible it's really metronomic you know it's like this um very steady flowing uh rhythm that doesn't waver in the slightest and then his phrasing um he takes this like really quite chromatic melody and sometimes lags so far behind um you know where the the melody should be placed um and then sometimes rushes up to, to catch it just before, you know, things get too discordant. It's this kind of incredible demonstration of just like, um, I don't know, a sort of uh, like mischievous phrasing, you know? Like he really sort of um, milks the suspense. Novos dias tristes, noites claras, versos, cartas, minha cara ainda volto a lhe escrever Pra lhe dizer que isso é pecado, trago o peito tão marcado It was already a well-known song that had been recorded like by Elise Regina and all kinds of other people at that point, right? Like, Retrato um Branco right. e Preto was and, a classic. And it also had a, another identity as a as an instrumental jazz standard, you know, sort of part of that um, bossa nova craze. Um, it was uh, Gingaro, uh, and so a lot of jazz musicians, you know, love this melody because of those, you know, those little chromatic tensions in the melody. Um, Joao was sort of a, a poet of like half steps, you know. He could take, um, you know, just the the movement. I think you know, Waters of March is another song that does this, where it's like you know, the, the, the tension that you get from, you know, a note and then just going down a half step, 
um, like he can turn that into this, you know, almost orchestral gesture, you know. In the 50s, he was bouncing around um, and, and really just trying to, to make it as a, you know, as a popular singer in, in Brazil. And, you know, I think had not really developed his style yet. And so the, the legend goes that um, he was having, you know, so little success that he, he basically went to stay with his sister um, in this little town in Minas Gerais. Um, and it was, you know, while fooling around with the guitar in her bathroom, um, and I think probably, you know, trying to sing quietly so as not to, you know, wake people in the next room, um, that's when he got, you know, that's when he had sort of the, the eureka moment. Um, and what I love about this story, that story is, um, to, to me, his voice, like what's so amazing about his voice is, is when there are moments when you hear him singing that the resonance you know, I mean, yes, it sounds, I guess you could say it sounds like someone singing in a tiled bathroom, but to me, it always has the resonance that you hear in your own head. This is a weird, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb with this, but you know, there, there's a certain sound that when you, when you're singing or, you know, speaking, there's a certain resonance that, that you hear in your head. And when you hear your voice recorded and played back to you, you're like, that's not what I sound like, you know, um, sort of the special chamber that you have in your skull. Um, to, to my ear, Joel Gilberto has always had a voice that sounded like it was in my, in my head. Um, like very few people have that kind of, um, sort of magical resonance where it, it doesn't sound like he's leaning into a microphone. Like it really, it really has the, the, that interiority of, you know, your own voice. Um, I don't know. This is sounding very, very mystical, uh, oh my and kind God, of quackish, I love but. this theory. No, don't walk it back one inch. This is woo-woo <laughs> made to order for me, and I'm sure Dana, too. This is just marvelous. I never thought of it that way. Nate, in one of the many wonderful obituaries for Gilberto that ran this week, there was a, a beautiful quote about he himself thinking about his music in that same way, that it came from an interior place of silence. Do you happen to have that handy to read for us? Yes, yeah, that's from a conversation he had with the New York Times in 1968. Um, and the quote is, when I sing, I think of a clear open space and I'm going to play sound in it. It's as if I'm writing on a blank piece of paper. It has to be very quiet for me to produce the sounds I'm thinking of. That's just incredible. And it's something that's so, so audible in every clip that we've heard. I, I wondered, Nate, if you've ever seen him live and if you have anything to say about that experience. I've seen him live twice. And uh, and I feel like that that quote about needing a blank piece of paper in complete silence speaks a lot to his sort of famously difficult live performing persona and the way he presented himself on stage. He was it wasn't that he was a diva. I think he had severe social anxiety and was a very reclusive person and sadly became more and more so in the late years of his life. Everything I had read about him in the last few years in which he had essentially become a recluse in his apartment in Rio and there was a fight between his heirs and his last partner. I don't believe she was ever his wife, but the last woman he was with, who was no longer with, were fighting over his money. And he just really had an ugly and sad ending to his life after, you know, having given so much to the world with his music. And uh, so even though it was very sad to hear of the news of him passing at 88, I felt it was almost a mercy that he didn't have to keep living in those conditions. One thing that strikes me about these observations about the interiority of his singing, which I love that observation too, Nate, and about the uh, his resistance to crowds, about the kind of quietness of it, one of the most surprising things to me in reading up on him was just what a smash sensation this musical style was both in Brazil and internationally. It, you know, when you think, oh, interior sound, recluse, quiet, taking the bombast out of a, a boisterous musical style. Um, what what was it about that moment for Brazil or for music that allowed this to be, to, to achieve those heights? 
my instinctual response would be to say that it's just ineffably cool. You know, um, the, the sound is just, it's so cool. And I mean that in every, um, implication of that word, you know, it's, it's, um, it's very urbane, it's cosmopolitan, um, it's both relaxed and, you know, it has this kind of slinky energy and momentum to it. Um, you know, I think Stephen, um, mentioned, I think you use the word lulling in your introduction and, you know, I, I suppose to a certain, like, depending on what you're, what you're up to, um, it could be lulling, but it could also be, you know, um, very much, uh, part of a, a seduction toolkit, you know? Um, and you, you think about the mid sixties, I think there's, it just really sort of struck a nerve, um, something about the, the, the sensuousness and the, and again, back to that word, cool. All right. Well, Nate Jinnan, it is a great pleasure to have you on the show for the first time, not the last time. Let's have you back soon. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you, guys. My pleasure. A concept I associate uh, more with the open office plan dwelling aspirants of tech bro universe or maybe pickup artists uh, more than with low-key teacup collecting literary critics is life hacking. <laughs> um, uh, Laura Miller, has uh, the uh, book critic for Slate uh, and literary critic, has written an essay about life hacking in which she says, it's not that life hacker has lost its luster, it's that I've lost faith in the concept of life hacking itself, the idea that my days could reach an apotheosis of efficiency and effectiveness and finally feel under control. Laura Miller, welcome to the show. I have to say, the lead here is that you were ever into life hacking. I did not see that a million miles away. I was obsessed with it for a while. I used to visit the site Lifehacker, which I want to stress is still a really useful site um, constantly. And there are all these other sort of productivity porn sites. That's what the people who are productivity system addicts call it is productivity porn. It doesn't actually have any porn in it. It's just all about files and, and workflows and that kind of system that you impose on the chaos of your work life. Um, I used to go to, go visit those sites multiple times per day. This was back in the mid 2000s, which was really the heyday of life hacking as a concept. I mean, I have to say, I'm just kind of, I mean, gobsmacked. I just, first of all, I think of you as someone who's um, incredibly productive, but of course, this is exactly because maybe you life hack. I mean, you managed to write a, <laughs> a hundred thousand word book, as you say while essentially maintaining your position as a full-time um, book critic. But was that really a consequence? I mean, which is the cart and which is the horse, right? Is a certain kind of person looking for affirmation about habits they essentially already have attracted to life hacking? Or is it really the fact that a kind of dissolute slob like me might turn himself into a new creature by hacking his life? Well, I think that life hacking does have a certain appeal to writers. I don't know if you've noticed, but writers love to talk about and ask each other about their work patterns. You know, do you work first thing in the morning? Do you, how many hours a day do you write? Do you, do you use specific tools? Do you, you know, anything, you know, like what software do you use? What pens do you use? You know, do you have a specific room? Like what do you tell your family when you want them to leave you alone? You know, do you, do you, you know, set the alarm for 4.30 so that you have like two hours before anybody gets up. That sort of thing, which is something that people ask writers about and writers talk about amongst themselves are all basically a form of life hacking. And, um, and it's, and it's a, a symptom of, of doing a creative job where you have a certain amount of flexibility about what you do when and when you do it. The term came up specifically at an O'Reilly technology uh, conference, which was like a, a kind of a gathering place for all of these sort of digital visionaries in the early 2000s. They still have them, but it, it, was, it, it was at its peak of coolness in the, in the early 2000s. Um, and coders are in their own way a, a type of writer. They're people who are basically slowly winnowing all the chaos out of um, out of life in order to turn it into code. And they work, you know, in bursts and fits the way writers do. And they 
are as obsessed with systems as writers can often be. I was just going to mention that I think the first person I ever heard use the term on a Slate podcast was John Dickerson, who is always giving life hacking tips and is somebody who obviously is insanely productive and seems to be doing 15 things at once. And it was because of him that I started to think maybe this life hack business means something. But the thing is, it means so many different things. You could think of them as productivity techniques that could apply to any field, but they're also sort of often creative inspo. I mean, life hacking can mean a lot of, of different things at once. And I wonder if you could talk about some of the things that it's meant that have been most useful to you. Well, one of the one of the things that, that I mentioned in the piece that I wrote for Slate about this, which was based on a book called Hacking Life, Systemizing, Systematized Living and Its Discontents by Joseph M. Regal, a professor at Northwestern. I just want to give a shout out to him because he did a really um, thorough examination of the subject. Um, it can include everything from the system called Getting Things Done, which is based on a book by David Allen and is a kind of object of obsession in the in in the life hacking world. It's like a particular system for how to handle all of the incoming tasks that you have to do and order them this way and create all these workflows and it's very sort of geeky. Or it can be like a household tip, like hints from Heloise, which was this column that used to run in the newspaper back when I was a child. Um, it, you know, it can be what you can wash in your dishwasher that you, you didn't know you could wash and that, that kind of thing. It ranges from like these very practical down-to-earth tips to sort of esoteric systems that involve a theory of how we work and how we're the most productive and how we can get the most done. And I think it was the, it's the, uh, that end of it, the very wanky end of it where you just become so obsessed with thinking about how to be more productive that you actually cease to be productive at all that it, that I think was the most emblematic of the sort of delusions of technology that we all had in the early 2000s. I mean, it, it was a way of trying to turn your life into a program and, um, and, and do things that it actually is not humanly possible or particularly desirable for you to do, which is basically work all the time. One thing that I really loved about your review of this book and that makes me want to seek the book out and read it is that it put its finger on both the, both the book and your review, put their finger on something I have noticed over the last 20 years, which is that being interested in productivity and personal systems whereby you might become more productive used to be sort of au courant or something that people, you know, tastemakers like John Dickerson used to lead us in. And I think with in the era after the recession and with the kind of rise into the workforce of people whose post-collegiate experience was profoundly shaped by the profession, I think there's like a general sense that productivity is a scam perpetrated by capitalism on you, poor, hapless individual with too much to do. And that like you are a chump if you are engaged in productivity projects, which I find intellectually persuasive and also not useful as someone who like loves her job, has too much job in her job, wants to do more and better because I am engaged in the ambitions of my work. And so I, I'm still interested in productivity, but I felt like I felt like 15 years ago, that seemed like something that the culture broadly was interested in. And it feels like right now the culture scorns it. And I'm interested that this book seems to posit, or perhaps your appreciation of it seemed to posit that it's technology that made productivity seem cool at that moment. It feels to me like there's always been a thread of kind of self-help and how do you optimize you and that the fundamental tension between optimize yourself thinkers and the systems must be rectified thinkers is like one of the great political and personal tensions of the last century and a half. Uh, and, and of course, productivity would get caught up in it. But to me, the technology piece seems less pertinent than the broader story of the economy in the last 20 years. Do you do you see that or do you think it really is technology that's driving the kind of fall from grace of life hacking? Well, well, I think it was a little bit technology. I think every era of of modernity has a tendency to use the dominant technology of the time as a sort of metaphor for the human mind. So very famously, Freudianism with this idea of like, the libido building up all of this pressure and needing to come out was 
sort of based on the model of the steam engine. Um, and this, I think that some of these systems, obviously getting things done was created by a guy who just was using file folders. So it, there was nothing inherently digital about it. But I do think that it was caught up in this kind of irrational exuberance of the tech boom because it, it, it caught on amongst a culture where people believed that you should be entrepreneurial and that if you worked really hard and worked all the time, you were in a startup, you could become really, really rich. That it wasn't just, I'm being productive for my boss or for the man or whoever. It was literally like, I'm doing all of these things because one, I'm, I'm, I want to be rich. And two, I'm changing the world. You know, I'm transforming the world. This idea that people who worked in high tech, especially in the first decade of the 21st century, were changing the world in some kind of great, fabulous way and were visionaries and they needed to be able to do the most of that that they possibly could, not just because it was their job, but because it was their vocation and their mission. Laura, there's another aspect to life hacking, which isn't just the kind of extension of Samuel Smiles and self-help into a you know sort of post-Silicon Valley context. It has to do with kind of manipulating others, right? I mean, it's finding a way to hack your relationship to other people by getting them to do what you want. And this specifically feeds into the pickup artist aspect of life hacking. Yeah. I mean, I had never thought of the pickup artist scene as being a manifestation of or a result of the mentality of life hacking, but obviously it is. It sees courtship or a particular kind of courtship, which is specifically like people who go to nightclubs and drink a lot and look for someone to sleep with as a a kind of system that can be optimized for one's own benefit. And, um, and, and the idea that the people that you would encounter there would all behave in the same way. Um, that's a very ugly side of life hacking because there's always the idea that you're just manipulating people into doing something that maybe they don't want to do or you, or you don't really care about them, but you're pretending to, you know, all the problems with that whole way of thinking about getting together with a romantic partner that, um, that we all object to in the pickup artist scene. But there are also couples that, worked at systems of how to negotiate who does what in their relationship that are more ambiguous that are described in, um, in Professor Regal's book. Um, there's this one couple that they, every time there's a task that needs to be done, they, they bid on it. And then the, the person who bids the highest pays the person who bids the lowest, the lowest amount of the bid to do the task, like, take the kids to school or whatever. It's this weird system that people find completely alienating and off-putting because it um, it sort of turns like what seems like a gift economy into a you know an actual cash economy. But the couple are very happy about it and they feel like it it's the easiest way for them to sort out an egalitarian distribution of the things that need to be done in their marriage and family life. That's so bizarre. I don't even know how to respond to it. <laughs> I mean, isn't there money? Isn't their economy already shared by the fact that they live in the same house and raise children together? Like, what does it mean that they're nickel and diming each other on who's going to take out the garbage? I, I don't. I, I found myself not completely clear on <laughs> on this particular, on, on, on every single aspect of how it works. It seems fairly complex, and I believe they wrote a book about it. Uh, but it is a, a it's interesting that so many of the exchanges in our lives are negotiations, but we don't really want to acknowledge that they're negotiated. You know, like a lot of the negotiation is unspoken and it's like, well, it's just easier for me to do this and to have him or her looking at me that way all night and, and uh, you know, or I'll get this if I do this. You know, the I think that is part of a lot of our, even our most intimate relationships and yet we don't really want to admit it. So in some ways, this I feel like this particular part 
of the of the relationship aspect of life hacking is in a way kind of is actually kind of useful for people to think about. And I I don't know that that it's necessarily a dysfunctional system. I mean, this couple seems pretty happy with it. I mean, maybe it wouldn't work for everyone, but um, but it certainly works for them. But can I just press Dana and Steve on this? I mean, like neither of you has ever been lured by the attraction of like, ah, if only I developed this new to-do system, surely all my tasks will fall in line. Like it's just totally alien to you, the impulse to organize one's tasks. I mean, we've talked about this before on the show when we talked about Marie Kondo and organization systems. Those are the kind of systems that I'm attracted to. Because unlike you, I feel like, Julia, you probably start with a base level of organization where you're thinking, how do I organize my vertical file folders with my ideas for the future? And I'm thinking more like, (laughs) why is the pile of papers on my desk diagonal and three feet high? (laughs) So my life hacking tends more toward, yeah, I like reading books about organization. And sometimes they give me a couple of ideas. I don't think there's ever been one that's, including Condo, that's instituted a whole system that changed my life. But yes, of course, I understand that that draw i think if i were to hack my life i would cease to exist um (laughs) i I just don't think any part of me is expressed in efficiency i'm all friction uh you know i'm all friction and loss baby i got nothing else i got the existential swindle going if i were to suddenly start hacking my life in order to be productive of some tangible thing i just would vaporize in an instant jeez okay never mind don't do that (laughs) All right. Well, the piece is The End of Life Hacking, of course, by Laura Miller. Laura, thanks for coming back on the show. As always, what a pleasure. It was really fun. Thanks, guys. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast uh, in which we endorse. Dana, what do you have? You know what? Actually, my first endorsement is going to be inspired on the moment by our discussion with Nate Chinon about Georges Roberto. I feel like we should make a playlist. Let's make a Spotify playlist of Ooh. great Georges Roberto songs, also songs of Brazilian musicians that he influenced or sang with or sang the songs of, which we didn't even get into, the giant influence that he had on Tropicalismo, etc. I just I, I want to freak out and make a big Brazilian playlist. And so that's one of my endorsements. But it doesn't exist yet. When it exists, we will uh, announce it on the show and post it on, on Twitter and so forth. Um, so that's one to come. Uh, but the thing I was going to endorse coming in is actually related to an extreme friend of the program, EFOP, who is Sam Anderson, a regular writer for the New York Times Magazine and author of the great book Boomtown. We had him in last year to talk about the book and the process of writing it. And uh, I just wanted everyone to know that there exists an audiobook on Audible of Boomtown with Sam Anderson reading it. And uh, I happened to come across this in an Audible search for something else. I've already read the book, but I always love to hear a book read by its own author. I had an extra credit on Audible, so I downloaded Sam Anderson reading his own book. And now I wish that I had listened to it in the first place because there's just something about his own extremely quirky voice telling this extremely quirky story that only he could have found in the history of Oklahoma City. Uh, If you listen to that segment, you'll remember how he weaves in contemporary basketball lore in Oklahoma City with the founding of the city in 1889. It's an extraordinary book. It's really fun to hear read in his voice. So if you have wanted to catch up with Boomtown, but you never did, go download it and listen to the author read it. That's my endorsement. Oh, wow. Yeah, absolutely. Um, That is enticing. I also just need to let the record show that I got a trivia question about the Oklahoma Sooners correct in recent months, entirely because of having read Sam's book. So (laughs) it has many benefits reading Sam's book. Life hack, read Sam's book and win it trivia. (laughs) Uh, Life hack, Julia Turner, what uh, what do you have for us? Okay, so it's possible that I'm just going to endorse further songs from the Summer Strut playlist for like the next few weeks because there's so many more that I didn't get to mention last week that I'm enjoying. But the one that I wanted to flag today is one that is maybe one of my favorite songs on the entire list that cannot by really any definition be characterized as a strut. It's just plain not strutty, but it is a remarkable little track. It is called Trouble by Connie Converse on the album How Sad, How Lovely. And uh, I adore it. And if you don't stop troubling me, you'll drive me out of town. But if you go away, as trouble ought to do, where will I find another soul to tell my trouble to? Yeah, that was an unusual track. And it's true that it's not exactly strutty. It's this whole different kind of neo-folky vibe. What it made me think of was the roaches. Did you did you think of that, Steve, hearing that song? Oh, no, no, no. But that's, yeah, no, that's totally apt. Yeah, that's cool. I like that. 
All right. Well, my endorsement this week is also something of a callback. Uh, I finally saw a movie called A Bigger Splash from 1973 or four. It's sort of slightly unclear, but it's a um, it's a documentary, uh, kind of in the fly on the wall style, but it's also got heavily fictionalized elements and staged elements to it as well. But it's about essentially the it stars David Hockney as himself, and it's about the aftermath of his life in a few years during which he's breaking up with and then broken up with his then partner, also an artist, a very, very, very attractive, I mean, really beautiful, like strikingly beautiful young man named Peter Schlesinger, and how the breakup leads to him making some of the iconic swimming pool paintings, but particularly the one that features Schlesinger, the very famous portrait of an artist, uh, and then parentheses, pool with two figures. And you see him both creating the painting and you get this kind of glimpse into the entire world around David Hockney as he's trying to make the painting. And uh, it's been re-released. It's at Metrograph in New York City. It's a time space limited in Hudson, which, by the way, is a wonderful and weird place to go see a movie. I actually love that institution. It's been in Hudson long before Hudson was put on the hipster map. Uh, TSL was here. But um, if, like me, you're obsessed with two things as they come together, one is the capacity to evoke three-dimensional space on the two-dimensional surface by painting, which just is an astonishing human achievement in itself, as it comes together with the ability of a particular person at a particular at a particular point in time, and therefore also in art history, to do it in a way that's completely distinctive to their personality, worldview, ethos, temperament. You know, just that 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 thing that makes a Hockney a Hockney and nothing else. At the same time, it slots into this larger project known as painting. Um, you know, I'm obsessed with this and I'm always it brings me in a kind of primitive way back to the life of the artist. I mean, I'm just always interested to know who these people were that they produced these works. And often they don't obviously have any sort of super conscious programmatic way of doing it. They they probably couldn't in a way, but to be in the presence of someone as they're producing what I regard as a total modern masterpiece. Um, and also, they're just sort of technical issues about making the painting. In fact, he didn't have Schlesinger there to pose for it. So you actually see him, Hockney, with a camera, um, you know, like a, essentially a Polaroid or Nikon or whatever it is in, I think, Central Park or maybe Hyde Park. I can't remember the film leaps all over the world except for california which is kind of a funny punchline in it they never go to california they just talk about it endlessly but you see him photographing schlesinger in that pose in that painting where he's slightly tilted forward in order to be looking over the lip of the pool to see the submerged swimmer the whole thing is just an amazing experience to watch i mean i am so glad that it's been revived um and sought out as i'm thrilled that Hockney is now entering just the canon of canons um, as a as a modern master. So anyway, it's called A Bigger Splash, a film from the early 70s about Hockney and the creation of this remarkable painting. Dana, have you seen that? No, it sounds great. I really want to see it. I'm thinking now of the, the wonderful tour of the Hockney exhibit that we made. Remember the field trip segment to, yeah. to go see Hockney? I wish I'd known about that movie at the time. It would have been great prep for going to look at his work. Absolutely. I mean, I kept thinking that um, that it was, would have fit in so beautifully with uh, with that segment and just seeing that that painting, which is just that room at that exhibit was so fucking sublimely mind-blowing to begin with. But this this really will help people who are who are interested in the subject. Anyway. It strikes uh, me, too, that the content must have been really shocking for the time. I wonder if it was kind of an underground film in its day. I mean, just I mean, having a gay relationship be at its center. Well, also, sections of it are, are very, very frankly pornographic to the point that Hockney himself, uh, I mean, it's an incredibly frank film, even setting aside a one very famous scene, which involves Schlesinger and another man essentially having sex on camera. But there there are just many instances where, like, for example, Hockney is taking a shower, fully nude or whatever. I mean, it's just a, it's a very, very candid film to the point where Hockney disavowed it, I think, for a while and has come around, apparently, and now supports it. Perhaps that's why it was sort of hard to find, but now is getting this revival. But, yeah, it is really worth seeking out, um, so highly recommended. All right, well, um, thank you, Julia. Thanks, Steve. Dana, thank you so much. Thanks, Stephen. 
You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. And I should say we're just getting great mail lately between the Vancouver Bookstore and the Hudson Valley recommendations. Please, please do email us. We are responsive and we really enjoy and appreciate it. It gives us a sense that there's traction in the universe for all the inane things we say. On a weekly basis, you can also interact with us uh, on Twitter. That's uh, Our feed is at Slate Cultfest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. For Dana Stevens and uh, Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Here's a sneak peek at this week's Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, plus ad-free podcasts, join us at slate.com slash culture plus. And there's no scares. There's no human concern. I mean, the, the thing is just a fucking disaster. It is t- This is like not quite mother, but it's like really, really trying for a full mother.